listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, Legal Talk Network listeners. This is producer Lawrence Coletti coming to you from our home studios. What you're about to hear is our continuing coverage of the American Bar Association's mid-year meeting in San Diego, California. In this episode, we catch up with Victor Marquez, Erica Powers, Julie Walensky, Christy Mallory, and Samuel Schwartz-Fenwick, who are part of a discussion called Hot Topics in Diversity Law, Same-Sex Marriage, and Employee Benefits Discrimination. We would like to warn that during this discussion, certain terminology that has been considered hurtful was used for educational purposes, and we ask that listeners not be offended because the intention was to provide information for a larger discussion. With that said, we now cut to our interview already in progress. I'm going to start to my left, try not to get too confused here. So I have uh, Miss Christy Mallory joining us. Welcome. Thank you. And I have uh, next to her, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Julie Walensky. That's right. Excellent. And then I have, and, and Sam, you're going to have to help me with this, Sam Schwartzenfenwick? Uh, Sam Schwartzenfenwick. Fenwick. Okay. Well, welcome to the show. And I have uh, Miss Erica Labine Powers. That's right. Excellent. And of course, Victor Marquez, welcome. Hi, Lawrence. I know that we have some time constraints here, so I want to get to it really quick. And so what I want to do was uh, I'm going to turn to you, Victor, to kind of give us the 50,000-foot uh, viewpoint as to where what your, uh, your, your topic was about. Let me read it off real quick. It's hot topics in diversity law, same-sex marriage, and employee benefits discrimination. So I'm going to quick give the sponsors a shout-out before we get started. So I've got the section of state and local government law. And then we have the Commission on Racial and Ethnic Diversity in the Legal Profession, the Commission on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity, the Commission on Women, the Coalition on Racial Ethnic Justice, and the Government and Public Sector Lawyers Division. Did I get all that right? That that is correct. Okay, perfect. So, Victor, let's turn to you. Let's get that 50,000 foot. What was this presentation about? Well, my role in the presentation was to talk about Partially my life experience as an openly gay Latino attorney. I'm a commissioner, one of 13 national commissioners on the ABA's Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Commission. And part of what we're doing is to try to expand the definition of diversity beyond uh, the the sections, uh, or rather the term of racial and ethnic diversity to include really all diversity, uh, including LGBTQ uh, diversity, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Uh, And queer is a new term that we have adopted in our community for young people who have chosen to designate themselves with with that uh, terminology. And can I ask you about that? Because uh, that's, you know, obviously when I was growing up, I was told that that was a hurtful term. And so when you say that, you know, that's one of the terms I try to avoid. But now we have people that want to be called. And so can you maybe just explain that to Absolutely. some of us that are? Absolutely. I, I would be happy to do that. I mean, I, it, it is painful still to it's a, really an intergenerational uh, uh, issue. And it is still a painful word to many of us who, you know, say are in their 60s or 70s or beyond because that was used as a gay bashing uh, term as we were growing up. But for the younger generation, it's been used as a political terminology and it's a self way of identifying to say we're proud of being gay, we're proud of being lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and we want to also adopt this terminology of calling ourselves queer. 
queer was a negative terminology and it's a way of self-identification and to make it really into a positive form of who we are as a community. And I, as someone who's in my mid-50s, I think that's wonderful. I think it's great to see this kind of movement in the, in, in, in the young community as a term of empowerment that we are selecting to use. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that to me. I just wanted to make sure everyone knew that we weren't trying to use hurtful terms out there, and I, I thank you for uh, explaining that. So uh, let's let's move on to it. So now I know this is a serious problem in the in the workplace, and so but I want to get into. Uh, th- thank you, Victor. Victor's uh, he's got a, a runoff here. He was the moderator, but uh, we still have the rest of the panel here, and so we're we're going to get into a little bit more of a deep dive on this. So. We know this is a serious issue, but I, I kind of want you, uh, if you can, for, for the benefit of our listeners that aren't familiar, that have not experienced this, you know, what are the serious elements here? People aren't being considered for employee benefits because... Yeah, thank you so much. So the, so the issues that Julie... This is Sam Schwartz-Fenwick, and I'm a partner at uh, Cypher Shaw in Chicago, and Julie Walensky uh, and I, we presented on uh, trends we see in the employment and employee benefit space. And I think Julie maybe should should kick it off in terms of from the legal side, just what the state of the law is right now. Thanks, Sam. This is Julie Walensky. I'm the director of the California Office of the Civil Rights Education and Enforcement Center. Um, I just want to note that our panel was much broader than just employee benefits. Our panel covered a whole host of LGBT issues. um, And Sam Schwartz-Fenwick and I covered some of the employment aspects of that. So we talked about um, the evolving state of federal employment law, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and how, how that's evolved in terms of protecting people who um, are transgender or based on their sexual orientation. So we talked about that. Yeah, and I, I think just the, the broad overview is that there there's definitely a movement with the Obama administration and the EEOC to look at federal law broadly as covering sexual orientation and gender identity, but it's far from settled in the courts. So what I talked about was best practices that a number of employers are adopting in order to just make their workplaces as diverse and inclusive as possible. Okay, and so uh, let's get into that. What does that mean? So uh, you're uh, you know, attaching the rubber to the road here. So now I'm hearing, I'm hearing employment benefits, I'm hearing other discrimination, and then we're hearing you know, about the, some new laws that are being developed. But, but connect the dots for me. What, what's, what specifically, how many, what kind of problems are being addressed here? Well, so I, I think in terms of, of the law, so Title VII is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So that's the, the general federal law for anti-discrimination. And so the question... So are we talking discrimination in hiring? Yes. So Title VII would be discrimination in... It, that would be discrimination in hiring, but there's a whole host of other uh, federal laws that were part in federal anti-discrimination... Uh, provisions that were part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and later uh, Civil Rights Acts. You have issues like fair housing and other things, but Title VII is restricted to uh, employment. So in that in that sphere, there's a, a very live debate right now on whether current existing law extends to sexual orientation and gender identity. So whether individuals who are transgender Uh, or gay can be fired legally from their jobs or whether uh, any adverse action you take would state a claim under federal law that they could challenge. Wow, that's interesting. So the, the the scope here, and I know we talked about this a little bit before, is to expand that that definition to try to uh, encapsulate more uh, within within the diversity definition under 
uh, under the section, right? Well, I, I would add that it's not limited to just the Obama administration. So Title VII has been interpreted by the Supreme Court um, in 1989 to prohibit um, taking sex-based considerations into account in terms of assessing someone's job performance. And that includes sex stereotyping, like a woman not acting uh, feminine enough or a woman who's too aggressive and not conforming to ideas of what a woman or man should be. And so in the context of Title VII law, courts have used that um, to, to say that discrimination against someone who's transgender or someone um, who's gay or lesbian is inherently a sex-based consideration into account. And there have been different theories about that. So we talked about the development of that over the years, along with some best practices for employers to include. And uh, I'm looking over at Christy. She's been uh, suspiciously quiet. So let's bring her into the conversation. Um, sure. So my part of the presentation was focused also on uh, discrimination protections for LGBT people. So notably laws that prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, I actually was looking at laws that prohibit such discrimination in public accommodations and how those laws are coming up against uh, protections for religious freedom. Um, so where a non-discrimination law is applied against someone and that person says I don't want to comply with it because I have a religious objections mostly uh, to providing services to same-sex couples uh, for their wedding that's for their weddings that's mostly where we see it we also see the issues come up uh, when transgender people try to access restrooms that conform with their gender identity and um, they get for example kicked out of a store because of that Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting, and I, and I think you know we've uh, our society is developing quickly in this regard, and I think it's leaving a lot of people with questions, and so um, that's a really great intersection. So now you've got a free speech issue, arguably from one side of the equation is uh, say a baker um, that does wedding cakes, but their religious their religious beliefs they don't want to put some, certain messaging on a cake, and so they exercise what they believe is their First Amendment right. And so the objection on the other side is? Is that, uh, you know, the, the non-discrimination law is there for a reason. The government thinks it's important. Uh, as far as specifically the free exercise clause, the courts that have heard this say, uh, relying on either the lower standard from the Smith case, which many people know is the peyote case, um, that it only has to pass rational basis review to be considered um, a valid law uh, that religious freedom can't overcome. So uh, we've seen under that standard the, the public accommodations non-discrimination laws prevailing. Uh, even under higher RIFRA standards that some states have adopted, the Religious Freedom of Restoration Act uh, statutes that ratchet up that standard to more strict scrutiny. Um, we have also seen the non-discrimination laws prevail in a few cases uh, that have looked at these laws under that standard of review. Um, of course, there are ab only about five high-profile cases right now that have considered these issues, so we expect to see uh, more of this unfold in the coming years as these laws uh, continue to get passed and butt up against each other. I would suggest, this is Erica, I, I would suggest that you talk to Christy about the institution where she works. Okay, Christy. The institution where you work. Sure. I work at the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law, and we are a research-based organization that studies laws and policies that impact LGBT people. Um, we are interdisciplinary. We're not just made up of lawyers. We have economists, demographers, social, social scientists, public health experts, a bunch of people that can all work together to look at these issues from various angles uh, to come out with great research-based results to um, impact the future of laws and policies that are affecting LGBT people and their daily lives. So, for example, you had all kinds of data that, that you were showing us. For One of the things that struck me was that, in fact, there are fewer than one in ten 
um, members of the population who are LGBTQ, and that there are different states that have different approaches to whether or not they will ban discrimination on the basis of uh, sexual orientation or the, the basis of gender identification. Right. So the, the 1 in 10 number was very popular for many decades based on the Kinsey scale, which most people are familiar with. Um, we now, thanks to much better data collection tools, um, for example, Gallup, a nationally known um, polling institute, does ask questions about whether someone is LGBT or not. Um, so based on better data, we now see that about 3.5% to 4% of the population identifies as LGBT people. And these people are scattered throughout the U.S. They aren't clustered in California and Washington and Oregon and New York. Um, so it's, it's giving us a great idea of who's out there that needs protections. Hello, Legal Talk Network listeners. This is producer Lawrence Coletti stepping in for a minute to provide clarity on a question that is about to be asked in our interview. During the original recording, I must admit that I was struggling to find my words to ask the next question clearly. Fortunately, our interviewees knew what I was trying to ask and were able to provide responses. Rather than subject you, our listeners, to a confusing set of fumbled attempts, I thought I would take this opportunity to ask the question in a much more clear and concise way. For my question, I started with the fact pattern, which includes two people using a public restroom where one person starts to feel uncomfortable. The restroom in question is a public men's room. In one instance, a person is sex male who identifies with the male gender. In the other instance is a person who is sex female who identifies also with the male gender. Both people wish to use the men's room and one person becomes uncomfortable. My question to our interviewees was, how do we, as a society, address this situation in a public or workplace environment? We now return to our interview. Here's Julie. I mean, as Christy said, transgender people have been using the bathroom as long as anyone else has been using the bathroom. This isn't a new issue. And I think that, and as Sam mentioned, OSHA has issued FAQ about this. It really is a health and safety issue for people. And I think that one way to handle this is to have um, gender neutral bathrooms or have single stall bathrooms or single user bathrooms. But also uh, one concern is that um, people don't know the anatomical makeup of people who are in the bathroom with them. And I think that it's it's too much to ask that that people should be trying to suss that out. I think people should just be using the bathroom that conforms with their gender identity. And for people who aren't comfortable with that possibility, then they um, need to find another option. Yeah, I, thi- I think that in the employment context that it's what, what Julie was saying about single occupancy bathrooms. It's important for employers if they do have a single occupancy bathroom that they don't direct the transgender employee to use the single occupancy bathroom. But if employees raise concerns about sharing a bathroom with a single occupant or with a transgender individual, the employer remind them that you know they feel more comfortable using the single occupancy bathroom than the objecting employee can use that bathroom. Absolutely. I don't know if that, I don't know if that, that well, came out Let's walk through that again, because I, 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 it's, it's hard to keep track of the, uh, yeah. the let's run through that again. So, uh, and I think it's an important distinction. So uh, walk me through that description. Yeah, the, the issue, so a, a common fact pattern is that an employee transitions at work and decides that they want to use the restroom that matches their gender identity. Another employee says, this makes me really uncomfortable. So what does the employer do? He has two employees saying, we don't want to share, or you know, there's an issue with sharing this space. So what we would counsel the employer to do in that situation is to tell the objecting employee that they have the option, if they feel uncomfortable sharing a restroom with a transgender individual, that the objecting employee 
can use a single occupancy restroom. Okay, I got you. And I want to thank Sam for clarifying that because when I spoke earlier, I wasn't suggesting that um, transgender people should be relegated to single-user bathrooms, but rather someone who feels uncomfortable, that person can go use a single-occupancy bathroom. And And I think you really have two issues at play in the discussions about bathrooms and locker rooms. I think one is well-intentioned people who maybe are just thinking about an issue they've never thought of before and having a visceral reaction to it. And I think that education and training or just getting used to a situation you're not familiar with will resolve the issue. I think the other problem though, that you're seeing a lot of hateful propaganda and it's really part of a pathology that for at least this past century has made people who are LGBT into sexual deviants. And you saw it in the 70s when there was a movement to ban in California gay people from being teachers. And this view that gays are predators and are out to attack you, and it's now being used to target the transgender community and to say these aren't real people, they're really sick predators. And that that is what a lot of the propaganda that's being put out is really about, and it has no basis in fact. Okay. I think this has been a very good discussion and uh, a very enlightening. So what I want to do is just turn the floor back to you guys for uh, any uh, closing thoughts. Um, you guys obviously discussed quite a few topics here. You guys have left some great knowledge for us uh, to put out there and go forth. So I want to start with Christy. Do you have some final words you can leave with our audience? Oh, sure. I just want everyone to sort of remember as we're discussing the importance of non-discrimination laws that um, many people erroneously believe that uh, LGBT people are explicitly protected on, under laws. And while that's not true in many states and at the federal level. Um, It is important to keep in mind that Title VII has evolved uh, and they can seek protections uh, through the EEOC if they have an employment problem in other agencies, if they are discriminated against based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, Um, which is not to say that explicit protections aren't important, um, but there are sort of two fronts on this issue. Okay. And uh, Julie? I just want to add that what we talked about at the panel and what we've been talking about now are really just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many issues that are affecting LGBT communities, both in the law and um, in life, and this panel is just the um, is just a one starting point. Okay, Sam. Yeah, I think uh, that as you heard just from the, the snapshot, there's a lot of evolving issues and uh, questions as the law continues to move forward and as people become more comfortable. Uh, sharing with the world their authentic selves. Okay. Well, this has been a very enlightening panel, and if our listeners wanted to reach out, follow up with what they've heard today, how can they get a hold of you? Let's let's start with Sam this time. Thanks for, thanks for that question. The, the best way to get in touch with me would be by email. My email address is schwartz-fenwick at seifarth.com. Okay. And Julie? The best way to reach me is also by email, j-w-i-l-e-n-s-k-y, at C-R-E-E-C-L-A-W dot O-R-G. Thank you. And Christy. And my email is my last name, Mallory, M-A-L-L-O-R-Y, at law.ucla.edu, uh, or you can find me through the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law website. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. 
Thank you. Great job, you guys. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.